Welcome to the Reflecting on a Decade of Building State Capability podcast series. On today's podcast, I have with me Michael Wilcock. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, Salima. Welcome to everybody listening. It's great to be here. Great. So, Michael, you know, you've been there right from the beginning, even before the beginning. <laughs> and I think what we want to capture in this podcast today is how you have been using PDIA at your work. For those of you who don't know, Michael works at the World Bank, and he is the lead social scientist in the development research group, and he's been there for 25 years. So, Michael, if you could just start a little bit with, you know, the process of coming up with the PDIA approach, and then we can move into how you've actually used this at a place like the World Bank. Sure, I can do that. (laughs) So as you said, I've been uh, 25 years at the World Bank, but all of that in the in the research group and the development research group, people are surprise, surprise, paid to do research. And it was the type of research that I'd done over many years, the first sort of half of my career, I guess, that really led to me thinking that we, the whole development profession, just needed to have a much more serious focus on implementation. It seemed to me in every seminar I went to or any sort of big level discussion, it was always policy, 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 more of this, less of that. My policy is better than your policy. And I just thought that, isn't it almost self-evident <laughs> that whatever you articulated as policy or have claimed that it works in some particular place, that's really different to whether the team that's actually designated to do anything that you've articulated can actually do that and not just do it once, but do it consistently at scale under a lot of pressure and do it in most cases for everyone, not just for a very specific group of people. And so that's an entirely different phenomena. And it just seemed to me that that particular aspect had just been vastly underappreciated. And so the principle of that had been amenable to me for a long time, but actually trying to do something about it required, I guess, a few more strands of gray hair and experience to have the, have the credibility or just the stature to be able to actually articulate stuff like this. So over time, we you know, came to this whole approach of trying to merge both the social science of this, but with the practice of it. And that's ultimately what the book looked like. It's a book in two halves. The first half is all trying to lay out the analytics and the empirics of why the orthodox approaches to implementation are so often falling short, but also not just shrugging shoulders and sort of saying, oh, we need to get better institutions or better policy and that that'll fix it. And so, no, there's a whole team of people that has to wake up every day and do this. And we've got to figure out from them and working with those people on those front lines of implementation about what their world looks like and why they so often struggle to do it, even with the best of intentions. So within the World Bank, as I said, I'm paid to do research, so I'm not an implementer on a day-to-day basis. And even the way that PDIA itself is articulated, if you just look at the handbook or the workbook that goes with all of this, it's to actually do that kind of work with a team of people in a particular country. That in itself is a full-time job. (laughs) But teams of people is a full-time job to really do it seriously. And obviously, that was not something I was paid to do or, frankly, would have been very good at, I don't think. But I wanted to create space for that kind of work and create opportunities for different incarnations, shall we say, of the PDAA spirit and the letter. And so I came to think of it as really having then three different manifestations, three different ways in which the PDAA work was engaging with the world. 
One was through the approach that we've championed from the beginning of saying, look, this is a really intensive process of working with a specific team in a specific country, working on a specific set of issues that we then want to shrink down to more manageable proportions and then help them to think more systematically through the authorizing environment that they face and then the change space that they face. And so all of that sort of work was just very intensive. There are others who were available to do that, but that wasn't going to be what I was going to do. The way in which I encountered it was in two different other spaces, not this, we'll call it the boutique sort of way, because that's ultimately what it was. It was all in with a very committed group of people, not just for a weekend, it was for months and months at a time to really solve this. And all the case studies that Matt and others have written up about this are all just wonderful insider looks at how that whole experience plays out for teams of people. I came to it through various different avenues. One was through attempts by governments to really rethink their work program around implementation. And the most voluminous, the, the most ambitious of those particular programs came from Cambodia. And there it was sort of a quintessential example of one of our friend Lant Pritchett's many maxims about life and development. This particular one was, we can't want it more than they do. <laughs> and I think that's often the case in development. We outsiders, we people that claim to be development professionals sort of do often deeply care about these particular issues, but there's only so much caring and effort one can expend. The ultimate ownership of these processes has to be those governments in those countries that are really trying to embark on a serious change process. And Cambodia, for reasons I won't go into, but just it's, I think, pretty clear that the 70s were one of the most tragic decades in human history for Cambodia. The people that survived it were just traumatized for life, that their children somehow, I think, have now reached their peak of their professional powers and are very committed to really trying to fundamentally alter what it means to be a public servant in Cambodia. The literal translation of the word public servant in Khmer, the language of the Khmer people, is royal officer. So if you work as a public servant, we'll have that notional title in English, in Cambodia, it means you perceive yourself to be an employee of the king and you are an officer. You're essentially in his army, as it were, and you're a good soldier in that army if you do what you're told, if you fully comply with all the rules and you don't really deviate. Your job is not to come up with creative ways of solving problems. You just do what the playbook says you should do. And this new generation of leaders is very conscious that the 21st century is delivering a whole array of problems for which there isn't and can't be a predetermined solution. There has to be a whole different framework, a mindset for thinking about how these questions get framed, how they get addressed, how they get analyzed, and then ultimately, of course, how they get responded to. So this particular group had approached the World Bank with a very ambitious plan saying, we are very committed to trying to modernize our whole civil service. We want this to be a whole of government approach, <laughs> as in, yes, we want tens of thousands of people to be engaging with their work in a fundamentally different way. We happen to have my colleague working in the World Bank office who was very familiar with the PDA work and didn't have to work too hard <laughs> to convince the government that they could go with the standard sort of approach to rethinking this whole implementation thing, or they could go really bold and big and try and fundamentally engage with this challenge in a very different way. And it looks like this thing called PDAA. And then we went to trying to figure out how to merge that particular emphasis with a new approach to leadership for this to start even, let alone before it could get to that scale. 
a whole top tier of the senior career civil servants in Cambodia had to buy into this whole approach. And so just giving them an article to read on PDA was, was never going to fully convince them that, oh, wow, okay, yes, we're now going to suddenly shift our entire modality of functioning and go with what these crazy people at Harvard have come up with. Um, no, they, like anybody else, needed to be persuaded that this was a good use of their time and money and political capital. This is a narrow window. They're very conscious that they've got this moment uh, where the political forces have aligned to make it possible for this whole agenda to move forward. So in their view, the best way to move this forward was to connect it to a leadership program. Because as it turned out, many of the people who are the running senior positions in the government of Cambodia had never even sort of done an executive ed program at a local business school about what it meant to manage people, as well as just the technical aspects of filling out spreadsheets and timesheets and all those you know, administrative things that every official has to do. The idea that leadership could be learned, that leadership could be acquired and improved upon, that seemed like a nice synergy with much of what we were trying to do with the PDA work. So in the pre-COVID period, we set about designing this whole program to an in-person program designed to work with the 800 or so senior most career civil servants across the government of Cambodia. Then, of course, COVID hit, and we had to suddenly engage with our own little micro-PDA process of completely changing this whole format, because we were all looking forward to making two or three times a year trips to Cambodia to work very intensively with these people, and then, bam, all of a sudden, every single aspect of it had to be turned into an online program. So every lecture we were going to give, every seminar or workshop that we were going to run, every single aspect of it had to be turned into an online format. And I was, needless to say, dreading this. I just thought this is going to be awful. It'll be turned from what was a much more organic, in-person, you know, real-time teaching kind of thing into a very structured, uniform kind of point-by-point, point, mostly pretty boring, therefore, <laughs> approach to it. But that's just how we had to do it. But we did our best to try and weave the content that I was going to provide with all the full array of publicly available PDAA videos that we prepared earlier as it happened. And then thought just more strategically about how can we run this whole thing online for potentially for several years in order to be able to get it to a point where the entire team of people could engage with this. To fast forward at all, we had 94% of people complete this, which is amazing. Mid-90s levels of satisfaction with it, which I could not believe. <laughs> but this was a revelation to them. No one had ever, ever suggested to a civil servant in Cambodia that you are a problem solver. You are a creative person whose job it is to help make the system that you work in better and trying to not just encourage people like that in a motivational sense, but give them a framework, a language, a set of tools for being able to take all these seemingly intractable problems and make them more manageable. The fact that that was actually possible <laughs> was not only just really thrilling to teach it, but to see that this was exactly what they were looking for, what they wanted to have happen. We're now literally as we speak, we're in the final stage. And what that final stage entails, of, I think I can say, of course, is that we have to ultimately hand this back over to the agency in Cambodia that would otherwise be doing this kind of training. That's the Royal School of Administration. The whole purpose of this is to make it look, smell, touch, taste, and feel Cambodian. And that this has to be something that they can do now with the next tier down of the civil service. We've convinced, in effect, the top tier of government that this is doable. This is something that they can own and operate them themselves. But now they themselves have to actually do that kind of work. And that's still an open question. As to, I've been, I like to think, sort of guardedly optimistic along the whole process of all of this, but everything has gone pretty well so far. So we'll just see how that looks out. 
you know, there's a lot of steps still to be taken, a lot of learning to happen, but I'm just really thrilled that the government themselves have wanted it more than we did. <laughs> and I think that's the key part of all of this is we've done our part, we've shown up, we've been diligent in our preparation and thorough in uh, answering all the questions of which there were many. Now it's their turn and they uh, have embraced all of that. But now across the whole national election, there's the, the incoming government is still willing and able to support this. So that's that's a huge, big win as well, obviously, in the in the authorizing space. Anyway, so that's sort of one particular way in which I can be engaged in countries where you're really trying to sort of do public teaching, like large scale engagements with people around why orthodox approaches to these kinds of challenges so often fall short and then what a better supportable implementable alternative to it looks like it looks a bit like pdaa we think then outlining what those different component parts are the other ways in which we've at least i've engaged with it at the world bank has been in contributing as part of a team to an ongoing reform process and that invitations then come all the funder or the donor in this certain situation has asked that we take a more adaptive approach to implementation and some of the people who know this stuff will sort of, well, the only sort of <laughs> only adaptive thing we know in-house that's got some legs so far is this thing called PDIA that these people have come up with. So I get invited to be part of all of that. That's a really different kind of engagement because I know in those particular moments, I'm not giving a detailed blow-by-blow sort of introduction to PDA. This is what it means to be part of all of this. It's really just trying to help people implicitly, if not explicitly, engage with the reform process, but in a way that's consistent with the principles of PDA. But in those situations when I'm part of a team, oftentimes very well-seasoned experts in particular sectoral fields like education, the last thing I want to do is sort of clear the path, people, the team with the answer has arrived, listen to us, follow, and then beautiful things will happen. Like that would just be the antithesis of everything we've ever said about how reform should be done. So my job in that sort of situation is to really engage in a shared learning process and demonstrate what a shared learning process looks like and trying to show that I'm there to learn from you. We all hope that that's a mutual process. And over time, in the last 18 months in Papua New Guinea, and really, really different country, <laughs> where the maxim still holds that we can't want it more than they do, but there is nonetheless uh, different pockets of influence of, that really want to try and change things. And that's where we've really tried to go with things. And then not just at the senior authorizing level, there's lots of discretionary space, <laughs> for better and for worse, in the PNG public sector generally, but in education in particular. And there again, you find extraordinary people, the people we dedicated building state capability to, the ones that show up every day doing their job, often under very difficult circumstances with very little recognition, where their pay arrives intermittently at best, but who believe very powerfully that that's their job. That's what they can do to try and make their country a better place. And finding those people, talking with those people, naming those people for the work that they're doing and saying, it's these kind of people doing this kind of work, even if they're not doing it under some formal notion of oh, now I'm doing PDAA, saying this is the kind of work that we need everybody to be doing and not just you know working your butt off. It's thinking creatively about how you deal with problems. And they face really serious problems. Just visit some of these schools entails four days of travel, <laughs> two of them up a river, and then the other two days across mountains where a track doesn't even exist, fighting off all sorts of creatures of one kind or another, all just to see a single teacher school. That's not easy work. That's hard. There's no glamour in doing that kind of work. It's dangerous to do that kind of work. So PNG is sort of the antithesis of how you need to have as decentralized approach as possible 
but there needs to be managed decentralization. It's not just anything goes at the local level. To build out a system of education that produces people and students that are really actively learning and themselves being able to do the things they need to be able to do at the age they need to be doing it, that's just going to take a whole different modality of engagement. And so the PDA work has been there. I've been a implicit rather than an explicit contribution to just thinking through at every stage what the reform process is going to look like with inspectors, what it's going to look like with regards to data management, what it's going to look like with regards to the classroom settings and the public financial management of schools. All that stuff is still very much work in progress, but that's how we can be useful in those situations. The idea of the spirit of PDA is, is infusing all of that and is there by invitation of both the donors and the government who does actually want to think about these things. The other final way, the third sort of way in which this happens is just through more data analysis of just being able to help people understand just what their world looks like. And I think a lot of the interesting stuff that's come out of Africa that hasn't just been the deep dive work into PFM work, but the other stuff that's just been looking at the different ways in which different groups have taken the opportunity to be able to think about implementation work in a different way and do it, but not just in a randomly different way, a systematically different way. And they've been able to craft different and better ways forward for those challenges that they face. When that kind of work starts to get written up, that kind of work starts to be truly organic. It's happening explicitly because they want it more than we do. They want it so much they're willing to take it on and implement it themselves because they have had a gutful of seeing the standard modalities of training and technology and all the rest just being dumped on people or the universal best practices being told to them as the optimal way forward. There is just a lot of creativity going on. A lot of that then won't be measurable in any kind of clear way that convinces people with folded arms in a seminar room at Harvard. <laughs> uh, when you live it, when you see it and you start to see a new vocabulary, a new modality of engagement and a new seriousness and conviction with regards to implementation issues starting to take hold. If that's what the Building State Capability team has been able to do as the, you know, the, the inner sanctum, the sort of four or five people that have been part of this from the beginning, then that, that has to be a huge win. If everybody could do that, I think that would be really amazing. And you know, there's criticism along the way of all of that's not normal, that's okay. But I think we're just trying to practice what we preach. We're just trying to do what we said was necessary, which is to engage with people in their own terms, to build out the legitimacy of the change process, to make it ultimately be owned and operated locally. And to say that you can get there, but we can maybe facilitate that process if you are able to think about certain key aspects in a more systematic way. And uh, that's been effectively what we said we thought should happen. And I think in our own imperfect, but nonetheless honest and diligent way, that's kind of, uh, no matter where PDA gets taken seriously, that's what it looks like. Some version of those three things, the boutique all in, let's work on it for a month at a time to solve this series of big challenges. The even bigger picture problem of how we engage with big system-wide change or working more idiosyncratically with individual teams who are finding the space to do things differently and are, haven't got the time or the resourcing to build in a full team of people around them, but are just doing what they can to fulfill their own mission of being a good civil servant. And uh, when we see that happening, how can you not like doing this stuff? That's really incredible, Michael. You know, one thing that we do hear a lot from the people that we train, whether it's students here at the Kennedy School or people who come to take our executive education or practitioners we engage directly with in countries all over the world, is how do you do this type of work, whether it's PDIA, adaptive, flexible, whatever word you want to use, work 
within large organizations like the World Bank or the IADB. Mm. And given that you work in one of those and in the research group, nonetheless, that doesn't even do implementation and have actually been able to do this at such scale, what would your advice be to listeners who are working in these large organizations and are really struggling to be able to work in different ways? I guess my answer would be an extension of the <laughs> Pachettian mantra that I just said before. Like, we can't want it more than they do. You've got to find a counterpart who has lived orthodoxy <laughs> and is, is frustrated with it and has the courage and the temperament to be able to think about this really differently. Like, I think of work that I've been able to do in India with some of our graduates, actually, from the MPAD program in Meghalaya. That's all work in maternal health care. And then all that work is overseen by an IAS officer, the most one of the you know, senior official in public service, who's a graduate of the executive ed program. And he had sort of an epiphany when he took that course here. And he sort of made an oath to himself almost that he would be championing this in his work back in India. And he's lived up to that. He's done exactly that. He's hired two of our graduates who lived in Megalia for at least two and a half years, <laughs> trying to implement all of this kind of work. And we had a big workshop there last summer, sponsored by the Gates Foundation. So, and some of my World Bank colleagues from the Delhi office came to this as well. So this was the beginnings of something that was led by the Indian government through this IAS officer, but then partially funded by the Gates Foundation, but endorsed and supported by people from various different multilateral agencies who were working in India at that particular time. So that particular work had lots of different spin-offs happening, but it's one episode. It's what it takes you if you have the what you can do, if you have someone who is willing and able from the inside to be a real champion of that. They wanted it more than we did. <laughs> and once that's true, then a lot of really good things can happen. Once there's a strong demand side, if you want to put it in more formal sort of terms, then at least in the, the other mantras that we claim to live by about you know having governments in the driver's seat and being responsive to clients and all that sort of stuff. If governments themselves want this kind of approach to doing it, then we're duty bound by that sort of logic <laughs> to be able and willing to respond to it constructively. So those are the kind of calls that I get. I got an email early this week from a colleague in Kenya who's found himself <laughs> with a mandate to spend a lot of money on, on this kind of approach and because the government wants it. And so his email was sort of a plea. What are we going to do to be able to respond effectively to all of that? So I think there isn't a short answer, but the short answer is that we can't want it more than they do. Once they want it, then we should be, as development professionals, able to know our field well enough to be able to say, well, yeah, there is something brewing in this implementation space that is really different from, but in some ways consistent with earlier generations of people that have engaged with this kind of work. But we've now formalized this in a way that enables it to be taught and practiced in different communicative modalities, whether it's in person, online, in smaller groups, et cetera. And a good development professional who's serious about solving problems as opposed to sending more money around and just being a custodian of a given administrative unit, but actually does what they probably thought they wanted to do in their early 20s, which was to be useful in the world and to actually help people solve the problems that they're engaging with. They should be able to do what I get <laughs> steady requests for these days, which is being able to respond to these kind of questions. Maybe we can do more to formalize that a bit more. 
uh, now that there is a true momentum behind this kind of work, but that's a next step. That's a different kind of scale of working for us at this, but we want this to ultimately be an organic process that unfolds and builds in its own way. And if we can do that, then we will be able to hand it on, so to speak, to to a next generation that comes after us to be able to take this where they need to go. But so far, so good. Thank you, Michael. This has been a real delight. I really enjoyed just hearing all of the, I mean, you know, we generally do work together, but all of these things that you do, we're not always aware of. And it is really great to be able to capture the incredible work and different ways you've made PDIA yours. Thanks. And thanks to listeners too, but also to governments that didn't have to do this. They themselves, the, 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 the most entrepreneurial people on the donor side recognize that they can just crank out money or they can be useful. And sometimes those are the same thing and oftentimes they're not. And the ones that I enjoy working with most are the ones that have gone out of their way to invite me or Matt or Lant or you or anybody else that's been part of this process to really help them get up to speed. And they could ignore that or they could take it. It's a it's a wager. I don't say it's a gamble. It's a wager. You're taking a calculated risk anytime you try and do something that's new on something that hasn't been fully <laughs> tested, so to speak. But that's true of everything. And so we were happy to be wagering that this was consistent with the evidence. This was consistent with historical practice. And with how most big organizations got big and how they got good at doing what they're doing. Another little anecdote. For my sins, I got invited a few years ago to be on a, one of these panels at a conference. And I was there sort of representing this sort of ad adaptive development approach. But I was on, on the panel with a guy from NASA, <laughs> right? And a guy from the National Transport Safety Board, right? The guys that sort of investigate why a plane didn't land perfectly at an airport or worse, that actually skidded off or even worse, sort of had an accident. And so I think they were sort of mildly amused to think that development was sort of just trying to <laughs> learn by doing and fixing up its mistakes. The whole reason that you can put spacecraft into the orbit, the whole reason that planes never crash, despite having flown hundreds of thousands of times across the Pacific Ocean between Australia and the United States, is because every single aspect has been thought about and they build this whole learning culture into what they're doing. And when you start seeing governments do that and being encouraged to think about that as the way they go about doing things, you know, we're not working in a space that is, is technology as such. And we're not trying to fix aircraft, we're trying to fix people. And that's inherently a very, very different kind of challenge. But the spirit of that, the spirit that humans are learning creatures, we can get better at what we do. We don't just have to accept the way that things are. And when you see donors getting that, and when you see central governments, local governments getting that, and you see the rising generation of development practitioners being taught stuff that we were never taught when we were in grad school, you sort of think, oh, wow, this is a moment. This is a chance for doing that. And then you read the headlines every day now, all the catastrophes unfolding in the world, and you think the big problems are just bigger versions of ancient problems of how do we get along with each other and how do we make this system work for everybody? And it's hard and it gets super contentious and it gets ugly and violent very easily. And uh, anything that tries to anticipate those kind of challenges and head them off and try to find a more constructive path, then we're just getting better at what we're doing. We are recognizing the very fraught process of change that we're trying to bring about that we call development. And if we can build into that way of functioning, a very different approach to thinking about why we do what we do and how we do what we do, 
then uh, yeah, that's a real profession then. <laughs> it's not just a group of people who are just slaves to a system. I want that to think as, as the ultimate legacy of our program is that it, it really did help people think about and do development differently. That was our mantra 10 years ago. <laughs> that was a slogan and everything else we like to think uh, has sort of been a manifestation of efforts around the world to try and make that happen. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thanks to everybody. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you liked it, please check out our website, bsc.hks.harvard.edu, or follow us on social media at HarvardBSC. You can also find links and other information under the description of this podcast.